welcome. Good evening. Um, tonight is the third session of the Jhana Practice Group, uh, March 2008. And my name is Tina Rasmussen. I'm Stephen Snyder. So just as a, as a contact setting for those here as well as who may be listening later to this on tape, um, we're offering this uh, practice group not from the perspective of scholars or historians of this practice, but really as, as yogis and practitioners and um, offering to pass on what we learned from Venerable Pao Sayadaw to people who are, are interested in that. So um, just to to say that, that we really um, don't purport to put forward a, the theoretical background, but if you want to ask us about practice or, you know, um, things like that, we're certainly happy to share what we know there. So the focus of this, um, this sitting group is really on the jhana practice, again, as, as a, a context. And the concentra- concentration practice such as this really... Um, is about focusing on one object to the exclusion of everything else. So whether it's the Anapanasati meditation where you're taking the breath, the, the knowing of the sensation of the movement of the breath across the Anapana spot as the object, or whether in other practices it might be um, some other object, is to the exclusion of everything else. And that's really what we're focusing on in this um, sitting group as opposed to the mindfulness practice where there may be multiple different objects that one would take even in a single sitting. And so through that um, attempt to focus on one object to the exclusion of everything else, that's really where the purification of mind comes because, as we all know, as we're attempting to do that, many other things will come and we can't stay with the object. And so that's really where um, the purification begins. Okay, so tonight uh, we're going to be talking about uh, two specific topic areas. I'll be sharing with you some um, aspects of the jhana factors, which are really important in this practice, and how they relate to the hindrances. How the two, you know, what are the jhana factors, and how do the hindrances interplay with them? And I've got this chart, which we can, will definitely put up on the website, so that if you want print it out or whatever, you can get it. And then Stephen will be talking about sila and purification. And there's there's a way that the, especially when you get into the hindrances, there's a, a very direct sort of correlation between the arising of the hindrances and the purification. So he'll be focusing on that aspect. So the jhana factors, can everyone see this? I know it's, it's a little bit small, but I'll be going through all of this. We thought, you know, there's a lot of specific words and things, and for you to try and write it all down and remember it would be a little bit hard. So have, sometimes having something to look at helps. So um, the jhana factors, which are right here, um, are, are aspects of the practice that start arising as concentration develops. And they're, they're signs of concentration arising. And uh, according to the teachings, they all arise at the same time, but then the intensity of which one is, is maybe um, becoming stronger, that may vary. And then as you go on in the practice, some of the jhana factors start dropping off. 
So um, the jhana factors really are a precursor to, in this practice, the nimitta. And if you remember from last time, does everybody remember what the nimitta is? Okay, so the, some of you weren't here. So the nimitta is, um, is a, another sign of concentration that arises in the mind as usually uh, some kind of visual um, uh, perception of light, not with the eyes, but with the mind as the mind is cohering. And prior to that, the jhana factors really need to be strong. So, so these will come up before that happens. So, you know, in terms of a progression of practice, um, as one is um, experiencing the jhana factors and those start getting stronger and stronger, that's a sign that there's the possibility that the nimitta will arise. And then the nimitta, if you remember, goes on to become... Um, uh, a stage in the progress of the practice that can then you know, potentially lead to the first jhana. So these will start arising first. And there's five jhana factors, as you can see. Applied attention, which is vitaka, is the, is the Pali word. Sustained attention, which is vichara. Joy, which is piti. Bliss, which is sukha. And then I'll just stay with this for now, one-pointedness, which is ekagata. And so those are the five jhana factors. So I'll go through these now in a little bit more detail as to what they are and how they're experienced. Applied attention is really, in, in terms of what is the meditator doing, at least at the beginning of the practice, um, before the concentration starts developing, this is really what you are doing, is applying your attention to an object, as we've talked about. That's really um, what this practice is, is to stay with that object, which in the case of the Anapanasati that we've been working with, is the knowing of the sensation of the movement of the breath as it crosses at the Anapana spot. So, it's not the spot and it's not the breath, it's really the knowing of that sensation. So that is what the object is that is being attended to, that the attention is being applied to. So really, the idea is to continually be applying attention there when the mind wanders to non-judgmentally bring the awareness back to that object. So then, with, with time, the attention is more sustained, and there's the possibility of having the attention on the object for longer and longer periods of time. And that then becomes vichara. And so at this point, um, there's still effort involved, but um, there does come a time when the attention becomes kind of locked onto the object, especially if you're doing a long retreat, probably at home meditating for 30 or 60 minutes in the morning and then going and doing your life. That might not be as... um, Firm, where it might not happen at all. But at some point in the practice, this starts to arise, and the attention becomes more and more sustained on the object. And this is where, in the practice, in this practice, again, when you get up and start walking around or doing other things, your awareness never goes off of that object. So this is where continuity becomes really important. In Vitaka, applied attention, it's the consistency how consistently am I applying my, uh, my awareness to the object? So really being consistent. And then in sustained attention, it's the continuity. So am I doing it without breaks? 
when I get up and go to the bathroom, when I go to eat, when I am doing all these other things. That's what really creates the sustaining. Because again, this practice is about cohering a mind into a unified awareness. And that's not going to happen if, if the awareness is going to all these different things throughout the day. So, you know, in a daily practice, it's the, you can cultivate these same, same things in the daily practice as well. Then the next jhana factor is joy. And this is also um, PT in the Pali word. And joy starts arising and um, is really, it, it, this what I would say is a more bodily sense joy. Sometimes this is translated as rapture. And so it, feels, it can feel very ecstatic. And um, especially when there's a continuity of the practice and the object is, you know, you're going through periods where you can stay with the object, um, there's a real, this is when the hindrances start to settle. And there can be a lot of, um, a lot of energy in the body, and it can feel really pleasurable. Has, that, has anyone experienced this before? Yeah. So um, it can actually get to a point where sometimes it's too much. You know, and so again, the, there's a purification happening here. I experienced this for a long time, where I, I almost had too much PT, and I think that it was really a purifying of my nervous system. So I'm totally making this up. This isn't anything I heard from Paxaidao. I don't think he would say that, but um, but it is blissful, and it's also when you compare it then to sukha, it feels a little bit more gross. So these are getting more and more and more refined as we go on. So sukha is a bliss that's really more like a happiness, a mental happiness. And all of these are in the mind. Even PT isn't actually in the body. It's still in the mind, but it feels more like it's in the body. The sukha is really like, like a mental happiness, more like contentment. And um, I think about it like champagne bubbles. Again, I don't know that the side that would use that analogy, but um, <laughs> no, no. But it's it's bubbly, it's light, it's very effervescent, and um, and and much more subtle. But there's uh, early on, it's a little hard to tell the difference between these two. And then, how can you tell it's not in the body? Well, you can. Well, it feels like it's in the body. Because this is what the texts tell us, that all these are mentally produced. I mean, you know, the, yeah, yeah, this is, we're, we're quoting the, the uh, Abhidhamma and, and the, this, I don't know if it's, it's probably in the Abhidhamma that talks about that it's mentally produced, but we did get some specific clarification about that. Well, the practice is purification of mind, so all of this is mind produced. Right. Right. And then the last one, one-pointedness or ekagata, is really, um, this is what is the practice is leading up to, is again the mind cohering, and just the name one-pointedness, there's a one point on the object, and so there's a way that the mind is cohering there. But you know, even in the first jhana, akagata is present. So, um, because clearly you have to have that one-pointedness in order to stay with an object for any length of time. That has to be a part of what's arising is is akagata, and then in the and I'll get into the the actual um, how these relate to the different jhanas. In the fourth jhana, 
uh, upeka also arises. It's not going to arise until that point. And this is equanimity. And there's a way where, um, because other jhana factors are dropping off, equanimity replaces some of the other ones. And, and that's really a sense of peacefulness. It's, it's, it's much more um, neutral, I would say, in its tone than something like bliss. So if you look then at the, jhana fact, at the jhanas, in the first jhana, you have all of them. You have all five factors. And mainly what you're, the experience is of working with these two. I mean, you, you, can, you can sense all of them, but the ones that are predominant are applying and sustaining attention because the first jhana really isn't that far off of normal consciousness. I mean, when you're in it, it feels like, wow, this is really different, you know. But it's, it's wobbly. It's very easy to go back into where you aren't getting jhana anymore, you know. So there's not that much. Um, these two are still really necessary because there isn't the locking onto the object yet at that point. But all five are present. Then in the second jhana, these two drop off. So vitaka and vichara drop off at the second jhana. They aren't really predominant, or even when you check to see what jhana factors are there, they aren't present anymore. And so there, again, you're going to be aware of joy, bliss, and one-pointedness, pt, sukha, and ekagata. But um, really, our experience was that the uh, PT at that point is sort of the tone of the second jhana is more infused with PT. And then in the third jhana, PT drops off. And the only factors that are present are bliss and one-pointedness. And so you can see, like, I like to think about it or, you know, when I was thinking about how to frame it in my own experience, if you think about in the first jhana, you've got five jhana factors. Well, what percentage would be any of those? You know, it's, it's, you're going to have much less of a percentage in any one of the five factors, whereas when you're in the third jhana, you've only got two jhana factors. So the percentage of each one being present is going to be a lot higher. So here, it gets much more refined because the bliss is more like a contentment. It's not so sensed in the body anymore. And... There's a real focus on the object, and the mind is really cohering. And then in the fourth jhana, all of the other factors drop except one-pointedness, and then um, equanimity arises at that point. And so in the fourth jhana, there's a real experience of um, it's much more neutral. And, you know, sometimes there's, this is, again, part of the purification is not getting attached to the jhana factors. You know, you can imagine that it's kind of nice. And so um, anything that we're attached to, including something as subtle as this, can be, uh, um, is another attachment to be let go of. And so in the fourth jhana, with the one-pointedness and the equanimity, there's a real stability. And, and plus the power of the concentration has become so strong that then it can be utilized for other things. And so these two jhana factors, ekagata and upeka, are carried on through all of the other, uh, all the formless jhanas as well. And um, in some traditions, other than, or in some, I would say, presentations of the jhana, jhanas, um, the teaching is to actually take the jhana factors as an object. 
And so just to, again, say this, I know we've said it before, but in the, in the way that um, Pawak Saidab presents the Buddha's teaching, one never takes a jhana factor as an object ever. Because imagine if now you've spent days or weeks or months with the Anapana Sati, with the crossing, you know, the, sen- the knowing of the sensation of the breath as it crosses the Anapana spot as your object, and now you're taking a different object, what's going to happen to your concentration there? You know, you've got a whole new object, so it's very easy for the concentration to start waning, even though it might be very pleasant, because all your awareness is focused on bliss. So, you know, that's, anyway, in this teaching, that is not done. So just to, um, to be clear about that. One, sustained attention is, you have all of your attention on the spot. Mm-hmm. And one-pointedness, you have all of your attention on the spot. What is so the question is, in sustained attention, the awareness is on, on the object, and in one-pointedness, it's also on the object. Yeah, so, so the practice you're doing, no matter what's arising, your awareness should always be on your object, right? So that's what you're practicing. But these are factors that um, are... They're part of the experience of what is happening in addition to your awareness of the object in access concentration. So when you're actually in the jhana absorption, you're not really aware of this. It's when you come out of the absorption that then you can experience these factors. But it's more of a tone like a flavor. You know, like say you're eating chocolate. Well, it could be dark chocolate, it could be milk chocolate, it could have cinnamon in it, it, you know. So what you're doing is the same, but um, the tone is different. And also there's a purification that's happening because you can see that they're getting more and more refined. So that's, does that answer the question? Did you want to add to that at all? Just that the sustained attention, there's still... Uh, there's still attention, there's still a certain level of effort, and when the one-pointedness really locks in, uh, it's, it's really a lot less effort, it's really more the, the practice is, is begins sustaining itself. Right, so as you go through, the other thing is, as you go through the jhanas and say one-pointedness comes forward as really the only of the five original factors left, that feels very different than sort of I'm trying to stay on the object kind of thing because there's a locking in that happens and it's like the practice starts doing you and this is where the thinning of the me release becomes um, much more predominant. But we're not in jhana at this point, right? Well, in the first, yeah, that's why this is a little confusing because in the first jhana you're going to have all of these factors. And even in access concentration, you're going to... If you're just, if you're in access concentration prior to the first jhana, you wouldn't even have nimitta. That's correct. Yeah. Can you explain nimitta again? The nimitta is, um, as the practice progresses, and we talked about this last time, so when we get the talks up there, if you want to hear the whole talk, you can download it. Um, The progress of the practice is that... um, as one sits down at first time and starts meditating and then the awareness gets more and more concentrated Mm -hmm. and the jhana factors arise 
at some point, if the practice you know, deepens and concentration starts developing, um, a, the perception of some sort of light, it could be smoky, it could be, it's just a sign of concentration, that starts coming as part of the practice and you don't look at it. You stay with your object, but at some point that becomes more and more charged with concentrated energy and then at some point it merges with the anapana spot and becomes your object. I ask how one is supposed to be aware of this spot. You explained it but I didn't fully understand. Well, we'll meditate in a little bit okay. and you can, pra- you can try it. Because you said the awareness. Right, so well, let's, let's do it right now. Close your eyes. Are you aware, do you know any sensation of movement between your nostrils and your upper lip? Are you aware of Um, anything? I'm more aware of the sensation in my nostrils. Okay. But I can be aware of my upper lip. Yeah, so we'll do a meditation in a little bit, and we'll give you a whole meditation instruction, and then you can try it, and we'll have questions afterwards to see how it went. Great. Yeah. So the question was um, about the meditation instruction. Just yeah. Okay. Great. So um, so the hindrances. Now here we have the five hindrances. Is everyone familiar with the hindrances? Is there anyone who's not as familiar with the hindrances? Okay. So so I'll go through them um, in a little bit of detail. Uh, okay, so the hindrances, again, I mentioned earlier, when you try and stay with one object to the exclusion of everything else, you'll notice immediately that you can't do it all the time. <laughs> and this is why, you know, my people I work with and so on, I can't meditate. They don't get that that is actually the whole point, is to have the hindrances come up and then to cultivate other things in your awareness. So the fact that they're arising isn't to be, you know, it's not like you're doing it wrong. Just you know, to be clear. This is, everybody has hindrances, and um, this is the, this is why this is the path of purification. So, um, the five hindrances are sense, desire, ill will, sloth, and torpor. I just love that one. Restlessness, and remorse, and doubt. And um, so, I'll just describe these briefly. So, sense, desire is the desire that we have to go out of ourselves for things that um, feed one of one or more of the senses, so it's it's really a wanting from the outside, and this is where the the um, the, the reason it's a hindrance is because it pulls us, and there's a wanting that really takes us away and from the object, but in life can create suffering. I mean, ultimately, all of these hindrances create suffering, and so it's not just again when we're sitting on the cushion, but in life. We want, we want, we want, and then we get it, and then we're immediately dissatisfied, or maybe it's nice for a while, and then we want something else. So, so sense desire is the way that we go out of ourselves to grasp things that we think will lessen the suffering, and ultimately um, it becomes a circle. And it doesn't really um, fulfill that need that we think it will fulfill. And you notice um, the way that the Buddha framed it is sense desire, because there is actually desire, like the desire for liberation that's good. That's why we're all doing this practice. So um, there are certain kinds that, of desire that 
actually lead one to the practice and to liberation. So, so here we're really, you know, that's a, a very small percentage of all desire, but just to be clear that the desire for practice isn't in there. Then ill will is um, the opposite. It's pushing away of things. So uh, this could be anger, it could be fear, it could be aversion is another word I like. But it's whenever it's something that we don't like is happening or we don't want it, we want it to go away, and it's more of a, of, of a pushing away of things. Or you could even see it as desire because we're desiring that that thing we don't want goes away. So, But ill will it has more of a tone to it that I think the words ill will really describe. It's a, it's a wanting to get rid of something. And in practice, this comes up all the time. You know, there's a noise or I'm uncomfortable or whatever. Then sloth and torpor, I just love that phrasing, um, is really, uh, it's a sleepiness, but it's not really about the body being tired because for, to practice when the body just needs sleep isn't really what sloth and torpor is talking about. It's really more a sluggishness. It's, um, it's a way that in life we, and on the cushion, we sort of get thick-headed and, and delude, delude ourselves in a way that we just can't be clear. And a lot of times that will manifest as sleepiness or sluggishness even when we've had enough sleep. And so it's, you know, after meditating a while, most people can tell the difference between I just need to take a nap and I've actually got sloth and torpor because this has been going on all day long. And I'm sort of blocking myself from really being present with whatever my object is. Restlessness and remorse is, um, is really just an unsettledness. You know, it's... Um, squirming around, it's thinking about the past and wishing that one hadn't done things. Um, so again, it takes us away from the practice, but in a way that we just can't settle. We can't ever just be with what's happening or with what we're doing. And then the last one, doubt, is could be doubt of Ourselves, Can I do it? I can't do this practice, or this teaching doesn't work, or this teacher, I don't think they know what they're doing, or, um, you know, it could be doubt in a lot of different things. Doubt in the Buddha. Uh, and this actually can become a big one, because if somebody is always going through cycles of doubt, there's a way that the, it's hard to really, again, settle into the practice. In the text, and what we found also is that at a certain point of practice, now this wouldn't really apply so much before the first jhana where you would actually use a jhana factor to offset a hindrance, but it can be done later. And as, as these are increasing and one is coming towards the first jhana, these do tend to offset each other. So I've got them lined up here in, in you know, which ones are really like antidotes. So sense desire is calmed by applied attention. So the desire to go out and see things and get things and I'm bored and whatever, when you're applying your attention consistently to the object, the sense desire starts dropping. And this is why a lot of times we talk about guard, safeguarding the sense doors. You know, this is one of the first things we do. Don't, don't be, you know, reading. Don't be looking around too much. Um, just sort of bring the awareness in and that the applied attention to the object will start to decrease the sense desire. And then ill will is pacified 
by sustained attention. So once the attention is sustaining on the object, irritations start dropping because there's a little bit of a sense that, gosh, I'm, I'm getting into a groove here and these things aren't bothering me as much. Then sloth and torpor are uh, vanquished, was the word, by joy. So if, if one is kind of sluggish and sleepy and isn't that engaged in the practice, when the joy starts arising, it's like, wow, this is really, I really want to be here for this. This is really worth staying. And so there's a way that it, um, it really cancels that out in the practice because it starts becoming joyful. Restlessness and remorse are um, eliminated by bliss. So you can imagine at the time bliss starts arising, the idea of, you know, sort of wanting to disrupt it by being unsettled, it, it, the bliss really overtakes that because you don't really, that can't pull you away from the object. And then lastly, doubt. When one-pointedness starts arising, doubt in the practice really starts going away because it's actually doing what it was intended to do, which is to unify the mind. So um, as the practice starts maturing, there are ways to bring these jhana factors in intentionally if the hindrances start kicking up. But initially, on the way leading up to the first jhana, it's just important to see that as the hindrances start dropping and that what we talk about is that the love affair with the object starts arising, all of these jhana factors really start canceling out the hindrances. That's what happens. With that, I think I'll turn it over to Stephen, who's going to talk about sila and purification. I am. Uh, I, I do want to just make one comment on what you were presenting, if you don't mind. Sure. And that is um, one of the ways of practicing with the first two, which is the applied attention and sustained attention, is uh, to really notice the quality of the relationship with the object. Meaning there are times when we can really feel that we're really on that, that object, the sensation of movement of breath across that Hanapana spot here. And we can notice there are some ways where, or, or some things we're doing where it, it diminishes that quality. And so just to, to hold it that way for yourself, of where, where's that quality of, of attention, awareness, right there. So anyway, I just want to mention that piece. Um, I'm going to talk first about sila, and as most of you know, sila usually is translated in English as virtue. We uh, prefer not to use the word virtue because, of course, uh, for us being uh, Westerners, there's a lot of context around what's virtuous, what's unvirtuous, and because we had a lot of uh, puritanical roots in this country, it gets confusing. So we prefer to use the term wholesomeness uh, in relation to sila. And initially, uh, it's important to remember that sila is the foundation of Buddhism and also this jhana practice. It's very, very important. And the uh, external cultivation of wholesomeness is really a monitoring of the, um, the speech, the behavior, and actions. And the external behavior uh, is monitored, the external um, Wholesomeness is cultivated by the, the precepts that uh, are available in Buddhism. And we, I've got a couple of the five precepts I'm just going to read are generally recommended for home practice. And the first one is, I undertake the precept to refrain from har- harming living creatures. 
The second, I undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not given. The third, I I undertake the precept to refrain from harming others through sexual activity. The fourth, I undertake the precept to refrain from incorrect speech. And the fifth, I undertake the precept to refrain from clouding the mind through consuming intoxicating drinks and drugs that lead to carelessness. In addition to the external cultivation of wholesomeness, we really want to focus also on the internal cultivation of wholesomeness. And what I mean by that is we all, when we get in this practice, this being a samadhi practice, a stilling practice, a concentration practice, as Tina said, as pretty soon after we start this practice, it may not be immediate, but if we're on retreat, generally within a few days, the hindrances and the defilements will kick up. They will present. It's pretty well guaranteed. And the internal wholesomeness, uh, the unwholesomeness, I'll say that first, is really that kind of self-talk and self-judgment we can get into, where we're evaluating what's happening, we're criticizing ourselves, um, you know, you're just doing a lousy job, everyone else is better than you are. It's all this kind of talk, and it's really important to notice when that's happening and really to not go in that direction. And the, the best way to do that is really to greet ourselves with compassion, really our internal dialogue, to just meet it with a compassion and openness and just to allow that self-judgment and self-talk to settle down. And it's, it's important to understand the, the uh, unwholesomeness is related to both the hindrances that Tina presented, the sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse and doubt, and also what are the three defilements in Buddhism which usually the first defilement is greed. The second uh, can be sort of a combination of hatred, aversion, fear, something like that. And the third is usually delusion, which also can be confusion. So generally those three will come up in some combination with the hindrances. And we're, as meditators, again, as Tina said, this is the practice, this is the first start of the practice of purification. This is a purification of mind, and this is part of the mind. This is the way the mind works. This is part of our structure. This is part of what we engage and how we engage it. So it's when these come up, if they come up uh, in a strength that's not a problem, meaning it comes up in just uh, like a passing memory or a thought, uh, we don't engage it. We just stay with the object and just continue with the practice. And really, we're going to only engage these hindrances and defilements when they really start taking us away from the object. And usually, it's pretty clear when that's happening. When, you, when you know, meditators will report, they just can't find the object. They can't stay on it for any length of time. They're flooded with memories. They're flooded with feeling. Um, you know, there's fear. There's, you know, I really want jhana. There's all these things happening. And so that's when they really have to be engaged, when you really can't stay on the object really at all. And to really engage these is, again, beginning to meet them, whatever the hindrance or defilement is, with a a kind of peace and a kind of openness and acceptance and recognizing that this is purification. Welcoming, uh, you know, again, we don't seek this out, but if it's present... We're, we're paying attention to what's really here. We're not trying to, to delude ourselves and say, no, no, I only have bliss. I don't have any, I don't have any of that uh, other stuff. Everybody else might, but I'm, I'm doing great. 
So again, when it's presenting itself to a point that we can't, we can't stay with the object, we need to engage it, we meet it with, with an openness, a sincerity, we, we never treat these like they're surgery, we're trying to kill them, we're always welcoming, we're always embracing, we're bringing everything in, we're really composting uh, you know, ourselves in this practice. And it's, uh, it's both lovely and painful to do. Uh, because who knows better sort of how our minds work and all the places we get stuck than we do. And who, you know, we, we, just with this practice, we can produce these things really well. We're really clever, and we get to see how clever we are. Do you have a question? Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I'm um, working with the Tatanapitra, there will come a time when I, when I have this energy that rises in my body mm-hmm. that becomes unbearable to me. And I don't know whether that's a restlessness issue or whether it's a sense of pity that I just can't work with. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to... You, know? you want to repeat the question? Yes. <laughs> uh, the question is that sometimes in meditation when vitaka and vichara, the applied attention and sustained attention are arising, there's a lot of energy in the body. And she's not completely clear if it's joy, PT, or not, but how to work with that. That's what I understood the question to be. Um, you want to? Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I think there's a couple, couple ways to approach that. One is uh, really to be, to be with it to the extent you can, because it's either energy that's coming up because it wants to support you in, in staying with your object. Or, as Tina said, it is a joy, PT arising, that is doing a purification. If it's more than you can handle, it can, it can come up in strength in a way that it feels pretty, pretty difficult to be with. Uh, I'll just tell you one of the things that, that I've done in that instance, and that is I just I take the posture, you've seen the, the Buddha posture, the earth witness, and that is just the, the right hand just touches the ground. And I found for me, whenever I had an excess of energy like that, just to do that simple act, there was a way it grounded out the excess energy. And as soon as I was fine, you know, my, the overflow was gone, then I would stop, of course. And I don't leave my object. I just, I'll just drop my hand. Mm-hmm. So. Sometimes it, it just it makes me jump. I mean, it mm-hmm. has this quality of just jumpiness. Right. Mm-hmm. And even when I try to be with it, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the comment is sometimes it's jumpy and too overwhelming to be with. Yeah, I think there, you know, there is, this happens, I think, to a lot of people where um, that stage where PT is predominant can be pleasant and unpleasant at the same time. And I, you know, whatever it is, I think that there's still a purification happening there. So um, in this practice, the good news is, like, with walking, I, I know for me, um, I would ask the side out about how fast could I walk, and he said, as long as you're staying with your object, you can walk as fast as you want. So at the beginning, when I had a lot of energy like that, I would walk pretty fast and just stay with my object while I was doing that, and then help to dissipate some of that. So this, we aren't really going to talk, I don't think, about the factors of enlightenment, but there's one of the skillful means that we have that the Buddha taught was how to balance energy and concentration. And if those are out of balance, you're going to have these problems. So, um, like later in the practice, when I didn't have as much of that, I couldn't walk as fast. 
because I found that it was too disruptive because I, I wasn't really in the PT section as much anymore. I have found that doing a lot of fast walking helps dissipate it, but when it arises when you're sitting... Yeah, <laughs> well, it's... But this is, you know, again, I think there is a way that that's part of the purification, too. And I don't know of any magic way to tell whether it's restlessness or PT, but... Um, but it is a phase that passes. That's the good news, is that if you stay with it and use the skillful means about balancing the energy and the concentration, that at some point it will pass. And this is a good point on the, what I was making earlier, the point I was making earlier about quali- quality, watching mm-hmm. the quality. Because if it's taking you away from being with the object, then it's something that you need to work with. And it's a skillfulness, as Tina's saying. So if you do need to get up for a few minutes and walk around, or wash your hands and face or something, and then come back. But again, staying with your object, then, then that's really following the quality. It's not letting the quality get too intense or too weak. So that's more what I was referring to with that, that expression. if I really work on staying with the object, it, it increases the energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it can, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, we'll try a couple of those techniques and uh, let us know how that works. There, you know, I, I went through a phase where in, when I wasn't doing sitting meditation, there were times I had to just lay down and just shake. And, you know, if, if you can just have a trust that the process knows what it's doing and not have to make a lot of stories about it, there's a way where, you know, it's, it's doing you. And if you can just let yourself sort of surrender to that and allow it, um, it, it does pass. Yeah, yeah, and and in, and in this, when when these things are coming up, the hindrances, the defilements, even the jhana factors, if they're too intense, it's really an important uh, important aspect to really not, as Tina said, not create too much story about it. It's real. Our, our tendency is to try to evaluate it and categorize it somehow. And really, what we're trying to do here is just be pure with our experience and not spend too much time figuring out what it is or categorizing it. And some of these will come up, uh, some of the hindrances and defilements will come up as story, the memories that will come through and float across our minds. And if the story is just passing, it's, again, not an issue. It's where it's really just there in a way that we can't get away from. And so really to work with this, what we uh, recommend is, again, to bring an openness and, and a welcoming and allowing to, the, to whatever's happening, to the story, let's say, or the defilement that's coming up, and just being with it and, and trying to be as unguarded as you can and not go into this thing, oh, well, I was right and so-and-so was wrong or vice versa. Just leave all that alone and just really have that raw experience and the energy that comes with it and allow that to be present. And normally what happens is the energy begins to dissipate if we don't add to the story. And so it allows it to calm down and to release a little bit. So if it comes out as a you know, 10 on a 1 to 10 scale, often just by being present and open to it and really being compassionate, it'll ratchet down where it, it will pass away. It won't have to stay there and be bothering you. So again, it's, it, it's being present with it and it's also not adding more story because that is our tendency as uh, good thinking people. And if, it's, if this is something that continues to come up and be, and be uh, repetitive, some people will have uh, various hindrances or the defilements come up again and again because they generally will have themes in their lives or areas of their lives. And that's when you, it really is 
prudent to come and work with a teacher where somebody can work with you on that specifically because it is hard to have the objectivity when we're experiencing at the same time when we're really overwhelmed with it. It's important um, to see that in this practice, the way that we look at it is working with the defilements and the hindrances, again, is the purification. And the metaphor is it's really removing those stumps and those boulders from that field. Before you can plant your seed, you really need to create a nice field for planting. Comments? So questions? What, what questions do you have about what we talked about or other things? I just want to make a comment that I don't think it's going to. Yeah. Okay. That um, last time when I brought up the restlessness thing, or kind of kind of a similar thing. I think you weren't here last week. Um, you know, just you didn't say the compassion thing, but just by labeling it and saying this happens, that you had it for a year, giving it a context instead of whoa, what's going to happen now? That was very helpful to me, and it, it was almost like it was like a flag waving destruction and. And then I didn't have it as bad after that. I may have it again, but anyway, so thank you. Good. Yeah, and that's what I like about this, sort of charting the territory a little bit. Yeah, you can see that it's not just you. This happens to a lot of people, and it's not anything to worry about, even though it feels a little weird at the time. Yeah. And it's a good attitude to have that it's probably going to come up again. <laughs> because that is how we, I mean, we, we go in cycles. You know, we'll cycle it, and, and it'll pass. We'll be like, oh. You know, I'm done with that one. <laughs> and then, if, you know, a little bit later, all of a sudden, it's like, wait a minute, I'm, I finished with you. And, but it comes up, you know, different. It's always qualitatively different, and that's what's important to remember, too. All right. The other thing I did have twice where it was like, couldn't do it at all. Yeah. And I was like, and after I'd had some good things, and so I was kind of like, oh, now what? It just was not happening, and I kept trying to sit there, and, and finally I just, both times, and I knew why. It was, you know, it was stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like, wow, the stuff is really getting in the way of meditation here. Yeah. This is really something. But I didn't know what to do with it at the time. Maybe speak on that a little. You kind of have been, but when you really, you really, you can't concentrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this is where, you know, there's the on-the-cushion practice and then there's our, our life practice, you know, where these same patterns are coming up all the time. And so that's where, you know, in Buddhism, there are many different practices we can use to work with things. And um, being mindful of our patterns as they're arising, not only on the cushion but in life as well, and approaching them with compassion and, you know, all of the all of the um, uh, virtues that are cultivated in this practice, you know, determination and generosity and compassion. And I don't have the list right in front of me, so I can't rattle them off. But, you know, this is where those all become things that get cultivated when we're suffering. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that's what it takes for, for those to become cultivated. And, you know, I think really the base of all of them is compassion. As Stephen was saying, you know, if we are, if hindrances are arising or the defilements, which are very similar, um, to address them with compassion. And also, you know, what happens like with this practice, what I love about the jhana practice, among other things, is that it's what it's really cultivating is a disinterest in those things. Because you're, you're returning to your object all the time. 
And so if you can become less interested where those things don't pull you anymore, think about in your life where somebody cuts you off in traffic and, you know, did they do it? Yeah, they did. Maybe you had to slam on your brakes. But is it really worth putting attention onto that or do you just drive off on your way? And so, you know, those are the kinds of things in this practice we're cultivating. We're cultivating a discipline and awareness that doesn't really care so much about those things. And that's where... This a concentration practice is building that muscle all the time. Whereas then you have other practices within Buddhism like mindfulness that can help us be more aware of the subtleties of our own movement of consciousness that, that cultivate other things. You know, but this practice in particular cultivates us turning away because we're doing it over and over and over. As we try and stay on the object, we're cultivating a lack of interest in the hindrances which is a really nice thing if you're out in the world. You know, I mean, it's, it's, there's a direct way that that, that makes life more, um, not only more pleasant, but the effect on the world is better, too. So, did you have anything to say? No, I don't think so. Can I get a question? I can get it over. While we're doing this, this um, series of classes and uh, meditations, is it? Um, I'm just wondering: Is there? Do you think we should just be? Should we just be concentrating on on concentration, or or working with mindfulness at the same time? I mean. You've said that on retreats that to stay with the object um, all the time when you're eating, Mm -hmm. doing your work or going to the bathroom or whatever. But um, what about in you know our our daily uh, life when it's not a retreat setting? I mean, I've been doing this meditation as my meditation, um, but. not so much trying to keep it in in everything, still trying to maintain a mindfulness of of what's coming up and not not staying with the uh, uh, with the breath with anapani uh, anapanasati and and uh, I just wondered in what we're doing now is this like a is it best to study it as as a constant thing until and then and then work in that. Uh, Intensively in a retreat, or yeah, I just don't know if if it's a, a period where are you recommending that we do it all the time now, or wait until we're on a retreat to go intensively into it? Well, the the easy answer is it's really an individual choice. It's really what's, what makes sense for you to do. There are people who do that, who will take this practice up uh, for some period of time. They'll do it, for example, um, once a day or every other day. And then they'll do other practices as well. They do mindfulness. Uh, a lot of people will do metta along with this practice. So it really depends on what you want to do. It can be done every day. It can be done all day. Uh, you're, you're not going to 
it's unlikely that you're going to get into jhana, have nimitta and get into jhana. If you're doing it, if you're meditating once a day and then you're monitoring the object during the day, it's just not enough continuity probably, which is where a retreat setting will further that. But it, it, there's no prohibition against doing this as a daily practice. But again, it's what I say, it's, it, it depends on you, what really is calling you and what your life is like and whether this practice is something you can do while you're functioning the rest of your, of your normal day. Yeah, they, I mean, both, all of the practices are cultivating wholesome qualities. So it's not like any, any of them are necessarily better than the other. It really depends on your own practice and where you, what you see as your objective at this point. And also, you're, are you going to the um, PA retreat? Yeah, you're going for a month, aren't so you? So I would, I would suggest, since you are getting ready at some point to go to the retreat, as you get closer, like we both worked up, I think, did we start one or two months ahead of the retreat? Anyway, we started a month or two ahead of the retreat doing one hour a day, two hours a day, and then as, you know, the week before, maybe three hours, four hours a day, so that when we got to the retreat, we were really primed. And all, the only practice we did at that point was this. So, you know, that I would suggest if, if any of you are going to go on a retreat and do this in your daily practice, try and work your hours up and do it all day. But if you're just doing this as a part of your regular life, there's nothing wrong with interspersing it with other practices. It really depends on what you feel drawn to. I mean, whatever you're drawn to is always a good practice because then you're, there's an inherent motivation there. Just because this is strengthening your concentration just for, for whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you could do this every day and not do any other practices if that's what you felt like you wanted to do. Or you could do mindfulness every other day, or you could do a week of this and then a week of that. I guess that's what I meant was, is every other day kind of like an option, or is it best to do it concentrated? Well, if you're going, if you're getting ready for a retreat, I would really encourage you to just do that. I mean, maybe not now, because you've got several months before the retreat starts, but... There is a big benefit. We both found that there was a big benefit to having done that. Yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to also incorporate some metta practice in it as well. You know, metta meditation, uh, even for a small period of time, you know, every day or other day, because it helps really build up that uh, sort of the good energy to do this practice. It sort of primes the pump. But when you get in, really get into the retreat of this, typically you're discouraged from doing that if you, unless you need it, if you really need it. Because doing that practice does dissipate in, uh, concentration. On the, on the, anytime you're going onto a different object. So when you get into the real tranquility, mm-hmm. you're almost in a mental state. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. Well, that, well, that's the jhana factors. That's the, right. the piti and the sukha. Yeah. There can be a lot of self-judgment in this practice, though, so that's why sometimes, you know, depending, again, on the individual, teachers will encourage somebody to, to um, do metta periodically. So, you know, since you're in, in the worldly life, your concentration isn't going to be reduced that much if you change practices, that, that could be a skillful means, too. Yeah, but if you're going to do a jhana retreat, cultivating the mindfulness practice isn't going to help you at all in that retreat because you'll be not really doing that at all, as, as you know. Yeah. <laughs>
lesen. What else? Is the absence of the hindrances indicative of being in a junk state? Or is, in other words, can the hindrances be at bay and, and not be in a junk state? Yeah, so the question is, can the hindrances be at bay and not be a jhana state? And the answer is yes, they can. This would be this is where the, a high level of access concentration um, may have very little or even well, I don't say no, but very little presence of any hindrances. So, for people who do mindfulness, the mindfulness practice, which is a momentary concentration practice in which you'll never experience a jhana absorption because that's not possible with a momentary concentration practice. You could still have the hindrances drop. But if you're doing on If you're doing this practice, yes, you could definitely have the hindrances at bay and be in a high level of access concentration. So that's why it gets a little confusing. You know, where is the difference between a very high level of access concentration and actually the jhana absorption? And because it's pretty pleasant when you get to that point where the hindrances have dropped and, you know, you have pretty good continuity and you're not, you know, restless and staying with the object and so on. And sometimes, too, the thinking can really uh, slow down or stop. So there's really long periods of silence, deep, deep silence, and the hindrances just aren't present. So it, it feels pretty wonderful, even if it's not jhana. It's pretty great. Yeah, and there's a lot of purification happening there. But see, right. this is where in this practice the whole um, arising of the nimitta and then the merging of the nimitta with the anapana spot and all of that is, if that hasn't happened, then probably a jhana. Yeah, so there's, you know, there's some other steps that happen. But even that, I mean, you could be meditating with the, with the Anapana Nimitta for a long time. Is it jhana? Is it not jhana? And that's where really working with a teacher, because there's so many little nuances when you get in there, that um, um, that's where it's important to really be reporting into somebody. Because the good news is that if that's what's happening, it's good. <laughs> so, yeah. What is access concentration then? So the access, we talked about the three kinds of concentration. Momentary, which there's really two kinds. One is if you have an object, like with the mindfulness practice, where your object is the present moment, but the contents of that could be changing. So like right now I'm listening to my voice, and now I'm noticing that I'm moving on my feet, and... Now I'm breathing. So, you know, I had continuity there as an example, but the objects were all different. So in a momentary practice, you're never going to have an absorption because there's too much movement of your object. Well, so then that's the, the first level. In this practice, there's momentary concentration, but it's really a different kind because you have an object that is stable. And then as that gets stronger then you get into access concentration. And when access concentration is happening, you have jhana factors arising and the hindrances have dropped substantially. And so it's in the neighborhood of jhana, but it's not actually the same as the full absorption into the jhana. 
And so then the next stage is the actual absorption. So access concentration, that can also happen when you have a momentary object. You can have access concentration where the jhanas have dropped, or no. where the jhana factors, the hindrances have dropped and the jhana factors have started to come up. So it's, it's a lot of concentration and staying with the object, and it's, it's pretty pleasant. But it's, it's still not a full absorption into the object where really your only awareness is of the object itself. There isn't, and so we'll talk, actually one of the talks we're going to talk about the jhana masteries and other things that become important when you're actually working with the absorption state. But, you know, access concentration is, you know, there's a lot of good that's happening there too. Shall we meditate? Mm-hmm. Are you going to explain the meditation? We are. We have a whole set of instructions, yes. <laughs> Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight and your shoulder blades relaxed down your back towards the floor and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and the upper lip, the anapana spot. Your object is to know the sensation of the movement of breath as it passes the anapana spot on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath at the anapana spot, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The Saidao suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single in-breath and one out-breath is one. Once awareness begins collecting, you can drop the counting if you like. Another method to concentrate awareness is to notice the length of the breath, long or short. This is not an evaluation of the mind, but an aware knowing. It is also not noting, as is associated a word to the knowing. Simply upon the in-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. On the out-breath, one knows whether it is long or short. As with counting, this can be dropped once concentration develops. beginning I felt a lot of distractions and I was trying the counting and different things like that and noticing the length of the breaths Um, but I noticed that there was some kind of like 
intensity of focus, like, it was kind of weird, like, when I was really trying to focus. It's hard to explain, but it almost felt, like, intense. Like, I don't know if I was trying too hard or if you're supposed to do that. It's actually kind of a question. Do you have an answer? <laughs> How hard is hard? How hard are you, supposed to, are you supposed to, like, really try to focus or... Initially, usually. Like, what was your experience of it? There was just kind of more intense energy felt when I tried to focus stronger. Were you straining, or was it more just a, a byproduct of what you were doing? Or? I could tell. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. but sometimes it, you do focus kind of intensely mm-hmm. with effort. It's not just relaxed necessarily. Right. Is yeah. That true? Well, there's a balance, you know, at, at the, at the be- again, at the, in the beginning, which is where we all are right now since we just right. drove here and, and so on, at applying the attention takes an effort. So, okay. you know, that's going to be needed. I mean, if we were all just sitting here, we'd probably fall asleep. So, you know, yeah. so you, having some effort is, is requ- necessary to stay, to have the attention be both alert and on the object rather than just, you know, often thinking. And then, but there's there's also a way over time where, um, in one of the earlier talks, we talked about how concentration in in our society, the word concentration is used for a lot of things, and mm-hmm. you know, like concentrate on your homework, or you know, I have right. to, I'm driving, I have to concentrate, you know, and there's a lot of strain and effort, and you know, right. and that's not that's more than what is needed in this practice. So and you want to keep the attention constantly there. Right. right. So even when your breathing stops for a moment, you're still focusing. You're waiting. There. Right. Always aware. Yeah. That point. Right. So it doesn't. So it's like a balance between not straining too much, but actually keeping it there, which seems to take some effort. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the more you do it, you can really monitor so, that. But it's you know a good question because there's a, there's a right balance, and you know you'll know what that is. And part of that's that quality I was talking about before, paying attention to the quality of the relationship with the object mm-hmm. when when it's really there and you don't need to put super effort there mm-hmm. then you just stay you stay there and at times you really need to put a lot of effort because it's wandering or the mind is wandering so you're really trying to collect it there mm-hmm. so That's it's the main objective yeah to i mean it. it's it's like you're riding a horse you don't want to fall off mm-hmm. you know right. sometimes you need to lean this way sometimes that way it's Mm-hmm. And that's left and right to those that aren't here. Can I ask another yeah. question? Sure. Um, it, how would one do something like this when they were focusing on a different task, like, let's say, homework mm-hmm. or something? Would you do that? Well, ultimately, with this practice, it's expected that you stay on the object no matter what you do. So it's, it's, th- there's a way um, of holding it or being with it almost energetically uh-huh. while you're doing other things. And typically the instruction is that you make sure that you're on the object and then you begin the other task. And you don't give the other task so much attention that it takes it away from your object. Hmm. And one can still be productive. Yes. Well, this is, this is where, you know, there's, this is why there are <laughs> retreats, you know, uh-huh. because in a retreat environment... All of the things you need to do, including cooking and, you know, washing your clothes and... Um, shopping and you know all the things we have to do in daily life are done for us so that there's a lot less um, thinking required so you know ultimately the practice can be done 
all the time, but the hardest time is when you're actually having to think. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want you to go out with an expectation that the practice would be something that you would stay 100% on the object continually while you were, you know, doing homework and, um, you know, because there's a certain part of the mind that thinking tends to dominate, you know. I I don't know if you want to comment on this or not, but there is a way where you can have a portion of the awareness on the object all the time. Right, that's what I'm talking about, the, the, the energy. There's kind of an energy footprint in a way. Mm-hmm. And there are people, there are three people from our group now that are on solo retreats. They're doing it either at a retreat setting or in their own home mm-hmm. where they are taking care of things, like Tina said, like their own cooking and laundry and things. Mm-hmm. And part of the practice for them is to really be with this object all the time, even when they're doing those tasks, mm-hmm. and to slow down enough to do those tasks so that they don't lose the object. And, and that's, that's part of their practice, the way they're doing it. But Tina's right. right. In the retreat setting, a lot of those things are taken care of for you. And the idea is you have to do minimal thinking and minimal decisions. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did a year-long solo retreat a few years ago. And I'd say, and I had, a, you know, I had a mortgage and bills to pay and so on. And I just spaced out what I had to do. So you know, I'd maybe do things where I was thinking in a short amount of time periodically or check email or whatever. And I found that I could do all those things and maintain whatever my object was pretty consistently. Does but the object I, change? Well, I was doing a number of different practices. I was doing jhanas. Not, not the same time. Not at the same se- time, but I would do like a month of one practice and then a month of another practice. And But, you know, in all of those practices, there is a, an object of the meditation. And so um, I found that... You can you can be somewhat functional in an, in a regular life. Like I'd go to the store, and you know, not often, but I had to get groceries, and I could go through the grocery store with no problem. So, but I, you know, that's not not right away. Also, to. it's done when you're on the pre- yeah. retreat quite a while. The people doing the retreat now are they're not doing their own shopping. The one woman who's doing it at her own apartment or condo, people are bringing her food periodically, mm-hmm. so she's not leaving the condo. For ten weeks, yeah. Other questions? Just, just a comment. While I was listening to this interchange, you know, just to give you an example, I was still staying with the object. So it, it's doable. It's harder. Like when I'm talking right now, it's a little harder to still maintain that. But it is possible. There's a little, there's sort of a little, a little, a little footprint you can still feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, That may not be a good term, but somehow that's how it feels to me. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering. um, I can sort of intuit different reasons why building concentration is a really noble practice. Um, But what is the purpose of actually reaching jhana absorption states? It's really the purification, that the the working with the hindrances and defilements is a purification, but to be in the in the jhana state is really, it's really a pure energy state, so to speak, and it's really purifying the mind while the person is there, while there's no thinking and while the absorption is taking place. So it's the reason the Buddha designed it this way is so that the mind could be purified 
and that the, the defilements, the structure, the way that we view ourselves and look at how we view the world could be purified so we could go on to other meditative practices and eventually go to liberation. It, kind of, it also becomes a kind of energy for the rest of the practice. There's a real, a real clean, almost burning fuel, you can say, uh, that energizes the rest of the practice. There's also, you know, there, there's a pretty fine line between access and absorption concentration in terms of, you know, the jhana factors and other things. But uh, the absorption is, there's really um, no sense of me being in an absorption. And so there's a really a pretty um, dramatic letting go of that, that self-identity that happens during the absorption. And that's, I'd say, different than access concentration. And for an absorption to arise in the first place, there has to be a willingness to not be me during that time, you know? And so there's a real thinning um, to be spending, you know, some lengths of time up to, you know, hours uh, having the awareness in that uh, being held in that way is then after that ends it's, it does have uh, I think an altering effect on how one constructs one's own self-concept afterwards and the purification continues after even after the jhana state there's still something that's working that's purifying that's going on that still can be, can be discerned even in a very very uh, discreet way does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? No? Well, thank okay. you all very much for coming. Uh, as I mentioned, we've got three of our members that are still on, on retreat. One person finishes next week, and the other two are end of March and end of April. So they're diligently practicing about... Oh, 10 or 12 hours a day they're meditating and really doing the good hard work that this practice is and uh, they were all most were remembering that we were meeting tonight and uh, we're thinking about everyone and sending their best wishes and so if we can think about them and send them some metta while you're, you're meditating and wish them well thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.